Welcome to the Healing Health Podcast. I'm Dr Renee Beale. The millions of masks in our parks and waterways have illuminated the challenges our healthcare system faces with sustainability. Beyond single-use personal protective equipment, the system is underpinned by carbon-intensive power generation, logistics and manufacturing. What can we do to make a positive change? Dr. Rebecca Patrick and Dr. Mike Forrester from Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation are here with me to discuss how we can take care of the health of people without compromising the health of our planet. Rebecca is an executive member of the Institute for Health Transformation's Determinants of Health team, where her research focuses on climate change and health, as well as sustainable healthcare. She is also director of Deakin's Sustainable Health Network. While Mike is a general paediatrician and a senior clinical lecturer at the University Hospital Geelong, he is a senior research fellow and clinical lead of Deakin's Sustainable Health Network and the Victorian chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia, where he researches and advocates for health sector decarbonisation. In this episode, we'll unpack the motivation for decarbonising the healthcare system and potential strategies for doing so without impacting patient care. Join us now in the conversation. Hi, Rebecca and Mike. Hi, Renee. Hi, Renee. So the word sustainability is used a lot, but what does it mean to both in the context of the healthcare system? Renee, when we talk about sustainability in the healthcare system, there's kind of two dimensions, the the economic dimension. So how do we finance our healthcare system? as you know, patients and numbers go up uh, and the cost of healthcare co- goes up. But our focus as researchers and our work in sustainable healthcare is on the environmental aspect. How do we deliver our healthcare whilst not harming the environment? So driving down greenhouse gas emissions and not uh, contributing to climate change. We've got to the point in Western healthcare where we can do great things for the person in front of us, but I think it's time to look at the fact that it's causing problems globally and it's causing problems for the next generation. And I think we can turn that around. But we need to start now. The Hippocratic Oath says first do no harm. So let's stop doing that harm in terms of resource depletion and global warming and all of the public health impacts that go with that. And let's actually provide healthcare in a way that doesn't harm the future, that looks after the future. This is a matter of global and intergenerational equity. Great. Which areas of our current healthcare system are the most unsustainable? Well, you can break down the uh, sustainability of a health system by thinking about it in terms of scopes. This is something I've just come to terms with as I've become more interested in the area. So most people may not be aware of the term scopes one, two and three. Would it be helpful for me to explain what that means? Absolutely. So... uh, with, relation, with regards to a hospital, scope one is all of the energy consumed on site. So at Barwon Health, half of our electricity is actually produced on site by gas cogeneration. So we burn gas, produce electricity, and we use the excess energy that comes out of that, the, the heat that comes out of that electricity production to actually heat the water and air in the hospital. And, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was a great idea. That was a, that was a sustainability improvement. But now we know we can do much better by being on renewable electricity in a 100% electric hospital. Scope 1 also includes other gases consumed on site, uh, in particular anaesthetic gases. So anaesthetic gases are 
really some of them are very powerful greenhouse uh, trapping gases. So desflurane, which is fortunately becoming a bit old school, uh, if you have an anaesthetic for an hour on desflurane, that's equivalent to driving 320 kilometres. You could use um, propofol anaesthetic for everyone in your whole department for a whole year, every patient that comes through, and have a smaller footprint than one person on a desflurane anaesthetic. So there are choices we can make. That's in scope one. Scope two is electricity, really, energy that you buy in. And the great news there is that the Victorian government, under a program called VRET2, is leading the way by switching all public uh, hospital energy or electricity to 100% renewable by 2025. Uh, so that gets rid of, if you get rid of gas cogeneration and you go all electric, then you've got rid of scope one and scope two. And then you're just left with scope three, which is everything else. And that's about 70%. That's everything involved in delivering healthcare. All the consumables, all the plastics, um, all the food, transport to and from the hospital, uh, the embodied energy in the, in the building itself. So all of those factors are what we now need to start really thinking hard about, you know, the pharmaceutical supply chain, everything in there. There are so many elements that could be researched and work that could be completed to drive healthcare towards more sustainable practices. What do you choose to focus on? In the Deakin Institute for Health Transformation, where Mike and I are both researchers, we've got a number of studies around sustainable healthcare well underway, uh, one of which is looking at PPE waste, in particular masks. Uh, and we're looking at that from a few different angles, uh, the first of which is uh, with a material science perspective or a circular economy. So we have the PPE waste, uh, where's it going to go? One way is to redesign it. So, you know, boil down the mask, get back to the basic materials and then reconstruct it into something new. And that's an idea called circular economy. The other dimension in understanding how we deal with PPE waste is look at the cost of different uh, ways of providing an alternative service. For example, reusable PPE, such as gowns, so there's an economic component there. We're also doing a system science project in relation to PPE waste. What does that mean? That means we're working with a hospital, uh, and in this case, Barwon Health, where Mike is affiliated with, and we're working with health professionals, the environmental and sustainability officers, as well as uh, infection control people. Uh, what are the drivers of PPE waste and why is it on the increase when we actually want it to go on the decrease? And so we'll map the system and try to find where do we best intervene? Is it waste education? Is it change in policy? And so that's the range of projects that we've established out of the Institute for Health Transformation. And, and so we have to try and answer questions like, do we have to keep using single-use plastic and turning that into waste after a single use so that at the end of an ED shift we've got bins and bins full of plastic overflowing, is that, is that actually necessary? Or could we be using a reusable gown that will have paid for itself after 100 uses and, and then become really cost-effective after 1,000 uses and washes? So is that – can we do that? We have to work with the infection control people and they, help, they need to help us think about is that safe? And we need to work with the procurement people and say, well, what are the barriers to actually accessing those gowns? And we need to talk to staff and say, is that 
Is that doable from your point of view? So we need to understand that and that's why we need this sort of system approach to really help define the problem and understand what the solutions might be. Great. So on the public discourse that we were just sort of talking about, around sustainability since COVID-19, there seems to have been an intensification of people talking about this issue. Has the increased awareness of the sustainability of health masks, like you've mentioned, and plastics used in rat tests, for example, um, led to an increase in interest of manufacturers, suppliers, administrators and clinicians as well to make healthcare more sustainable? I certainly think COVID-19 supercharged awareness across, you know, business, community, but I think it was bubbling away over time, particularly in Australia, Um, and I think also the recent federal election, which has been touted as a climate change election, certainly is a signal for you know, the the whole of community demands for sustainability in Australia and that includes sustainable healthcare. And that's just one sector where we can really have some wins and we know that it's a sector that contributes uh, 7% of our national greenhouse gas emissions. So um, there's some uh, opportunities ahead of us to decrease emissions. Yeah, that's right. So the PPE was such a massive issue. It's there. You can see it tumbling out of bins and rolling down gutters. So we're all hyper aware of that. It's it's really just the physical uh, example that you can latch onto of a much bigger problem. It's only, actually only 2% of our health sector footprint. Rebecca talked about 7% um, of our national carbon emissions being from the health sector. And only 2% of that is about waste, including PPE, but it's really visible. It's what everyone talks about. When Barwon Health asked for professionals, clinicians, in fact, everyone in in the hospital service to make submissions about our new strategy, over over half of the submissions were about wanting to get our house in order to become a more sustainable healthcare provider. And that's what led to sustainability, environmental sustainability, becoming part of Bowen Health Strategic Plan and to us employing a sustainability manager for the whole region, actually, for the whole Southwest region, which is an exciting, an exciting development. Yeah, that's great. So research published several years ago actually spoke about the 7% data, but it also said, so in one year, we produced the third highest emissions in the world per capita for our healthcare Is it possible then looking at those kinds of data to have a completely sustainable healthcare system in Australia? If so, what does that look like? Look, the NHS in the UK is doing some great work and is the leader. Um, So we've got um, them to look to. Mike, do you just want to unpack what the NHS is doing? Yeah, it's really exciting. So the, there have been some thought leaders on this globally, the Healthcare Without Harm and the Global Green and Healthy Hospitals, which is housed by CAHA that, um, that Rebecca works with. They have been real leaders thinking about how do we decarbonise the healthcare sector. It's such a massive and challenging problem. But what the NHS has done is said, well, let's just start. Let's just uh, fund a sustainable healthcare unit. They made the case that it would be cost-saving and that any any funds saved would be redirected to healthcare and they have set ambitious targets. They're about 10 years ahead of us, but we can try and pedal like crazy and catch up to them. Their targets are to be 80% reduced across scopes one, two and three that I spoke about earlier um, by 2030 
and down to carbon zero by 2040 for everything they control and by 2045 to include everything that they don't control. Uh, and it's worth just thinking about what that ambition means. It's across scopes one, two and three. So it's their whole supply chain, their whole global supply chain being carbon zero, not net zero. You can talk about being carbon zero versus carbon neutral. Carbon zero is actually not producing the carbon in the foot in the first place. Carbon neutral is about offsetting and offsetting as we know is a bit of a flawed concept in many ways. Very difficult to make a really clear case for offsetting working. It's worth doing but it's not worth relying on. Uh, the NHS won't even be looking at offsetting until 2044 in their last year of their carbon zero ambitions and then they'll see what's left and whatever tiny little bit is left they'll offset that. So that's the kind of ambition that we need to be working towards a carbon zero health sector here. And you mentioned the national context in Australia. Look, health professionals have been extremely active in in the uh, taking action on climate change in Australia. I'm a member of the Climate and Health Alliance. Mike's involved in Doctors for the Environment Australia. And actually, to a large extent, health professionals have led the charge on climate action and sustainability. And we're currently in a really strong position with... Um, the incoming of the new federal government who have endorsed a national strategy on climate change and health and wellbeing. And one of the pillars of that is a climate resilient and sustainable healthcare system. So we're really poised at the national level for a policy uh, direction that will support quite transformative and reasonably rapid change. So that's really exciting for us. And that's that's come to fruition from health professionals, putting a lot of pressure on and actually crafting the architecture of policy uh, that can guide both federal and state uh, efforts. But I think Mike might agree, um, you know, the job's not done. We're still sort of early days and we're really looking to government to uh, design an implementation of, of that national strategy. So, yeah, we're looking forward to the next three years to, to seeing that work come to fruition. And part of that strategy will be to develop sustainable healthcare units at state levels and at national levels to really oversee this process. So you both recently wrote an article on decarbonising the healthcare sector. And you called it hope is not a method. If hope's not doing the trick, then what can be done to decarbonise healthcare? Yeah, so it should start with hope, but uh, not end there. So it requires actual ambition, serious targets, a governance structure, support mechanisms, and we need to get everyone involved, all individuals in the community, clinicians, academics, trying to solve these problems together in a system-oriented way. Great. The targets work, do you think... In the UK, you were talking about they have targets. Has that proven over the last decade that they've been working on this, that the targets are actually really important? Yes, uh, but you'd need interim targets that are scaled towards your eventual targets. There's no point making a lofty target about 2040 or 2050. What you've got to focus on is what does that mean for next year? And you need to measure that. And if you're not managing that by next year, what's it going to take? So we need really tight interim targets on a, on a timeline to work towards these eventual targets and we need to be ready to make the adaptations we need along the way. And I suppose we need a, a range of instruments at various levels, national, state, right down to the local hospital and healthcare service level to really 
create the environment and will to drive that change rapidly because we are living in a climate crisis. We can't sit and twiddle our thumbs. Uh, We need to act now, particularly as Mike, he's a paediatrician and he cares about the kids. So, you know, it's about setting up this work now and and going full steam ahead. And there needs to be a a mechanism to really foster innovation. So, Just this morning, I was talking to Fiona, the diabetes nurse educator on the paediatric ward, and I had been speaking to her last week about this work. And she said, yeah, you know, waste is such a massive problem in diabetes care for kids. She showed me an apple size plastic device used for inserting kids' uh, continuous glucose monitors. They'll use about one a week on average, and that's a disposable chunk of plastic. And she said, you know, there, there would be ways around this. There are ways this could be reused. There's one company that's actually already starting a, a return and recycle program. The main company is just recommending they're all thrown away. In fact, they, they recommend they're thrown away as, in, as infectious waste, which probably doesn't really make sense for a retracted needle. That then needs to be ground or burned as infectious waste, which really adds to the, to the sustainability burden. And what she said was really interesting. She said, these kids now and a lot of the families are saying, I don't really want to use that device because I don't want to be creating that much waste. Is there an alternative? So I suggested, why doesn't she get back to the company rep who's always looking for avenues to increase sales and say, could we have a meeting with someone from the company to look at what the alternatives might be and give that feedback that consumers, patients are saying, we don't want this. Great. Let's build upon the consumer perceptions then. Do you think consumer perceptions about safety and infection control in part drive what is currently possible in the healthcare sector around sustainability? And if so, what work needs to be done to change perceptions? Yeah, so we should always be making sure that any change we make isn't going to be decreasing the quality of care or having any adverse impact on safety. Uh, The good news is that most of the time, the sort of initiatives that have been undertaken already in Australia or overseas actually are a co-benefit story. For example, we just heard from one of the leads from Ambulance Victoria last week, and she talked about uh, a switch to um, doing phone-based supports for a significant fraction of people who call for an ambulance, actually doing a phone-based consultation um, with clinical staff, and helping redirect them, you know, perhaps to their GP or something else if necessary. They, in that situation, probably got better care than it saved them uh, an unnecessary trip to the ED and sitting in triage for hours. And it saved a whole lot of money for the health service. And it was a really significant carbon benefit. I think she talked about, you know, I can't remember how many trips to the moon were saved in terms of Victorian ambulance miles in that period, but a lot. So most of the time there can be a co-benefit story. Another example I can give you is with kids uh, using asthma puffers. You know, those little asthma puffers, um, one of those has the carbon footprint equivalent of a 300-kilometre drive, one little asthma puffer. So we could just argue that kids who are old enough to use the dry powder variation of that, the one that doesn't have the propellant is the um, hydrofluorocarbon is the greenhouse trapping gas. If you use a dry powder inhaler, no propellant, um, then that's only about a five kilometre carbon equivalent. Now that's a big difference, uh, but is it of benefit to the kid? Well, if they're in the playground at lunchtime and they've got a, a puffer with a propellant, 
that actually doesn't work without a spacer because you can't breathe in fast enough to stop that just spraying over your mouth and not going into your lungs. So you have to have a spacer. But kids don't carry spacers around at lunchtime. So actually using their puffer in their pocket without a spacer is much less useful than using a dry powder inhaler. So they're, get, they're getting better asthma care for their sport at lunchtime uh, and it's better for the planet. And so that's another win-win. Excellent. Health shouldn't be hard. At the Institute for Health Transformation, we create real-world solutions for the most complex health challenges. If you've enjoyed this episode, follow us on Twitter at IHT underscore Deacon for more. Conversations around climate change and the environment often focus on actions that individuals can take to reduce their impacts on climate change. But when it comes to healthcare, should it be a whole of system approach? And equally, what can individuals do to support these efforts? With respect to individuals, you're absolutely right. Individuals, you know, that it's we're a part of the problem and the solution and we've all got a bit to play in our sphere of influence. And we're all healthcare consumers. And so uh, having a conversation with your health practitioner at an individual level, uh, you can contact your local MP and say that this is a really important issue for me and my community and my kids uh, so that that actually then feeds through um, the political system and the policy. In terms if you're a health researcher, there's a couple of other ways that you can contribute. Uh, so right back at the start, you can think about if I'm going to design and implement my study, how can I ensure that there's no in unintended waste or contribution to climate change? So you can think about lowering the footprint of your study design, for example. Can you run your focus groups online rather than, you know, getting everyone to move to one place and therefore travel emissions? The other part to designing research that will support sustainability metrics is actually designing in measures. So not only are you researching a health outcome, but you also might be looking at the sustainability outcome. For example, one of our research projects with Kuirup Regional Health Service, a beautiful health service out on the peri-urban fringe of Melbourne, uh, we worked uh, with the service to evaluate their men's shed program. And the Men's Shed program was a co-benefit. So there's that word again, co-benefit program. And so we looked at the Men's Shed and there was some deliberate intent around recycling, gardening and bringing biodiversity back to the local hospital and the beautiful grounds in which it's set. And so we evaluated that project and deliberately looking for the environment and sustainability outcomes. So we established that because of the biodiversity, we're actually seeing some endangered species coming back onto the hospital grounds. What a win for biodiversity and the planet. You know, and who doesn't want to see gorgeous, fluffy Australian mammals in the hospital grounds? But what we also found is there was health benefits, mental health and social inclusion benefits for the men that were over 60 and often single or living alone or had chronic disease. So there was those co-benefits again uh, for, for the hospital in terms of driving down sustainability and pollution issues, but promoting health and wellbeing of, of the people involved in, in that healthcare setting. And what about if you're working in a hospital? What can you do? If people really want to know how can I help 
uh, if I'm not in some uh, position of power? Well, let's start with those who are in power. So if you are uh, in the hospital executive, well, you could appoint a sustainability manager at a level to really have an impact in the organisation, ideally a sustainability director. If you are the head of the anaesthetic department, well, you can hide the desflurane or make it very difficult to access under, except under very restricted uh, uh, circumstances. Uh, and that will make a massive difference to your department's footprint. Or, you, or if you work in any department, you can become a sustainability champion like Fiona the diabetes nurse and come up with some ideas. You can advocate uh, for what your organisation should be doing as any member of the hospital can. If you're a teacher, you can think about how can I embed sustainability into uh, what I'm teaching. If you are a prescriber, you can, you know, did you know that if you were to prescribe one person uh, who uses one of those propellant puffers, asthma puffers a month, if you were to prescribe one person to go onto a powder instead of the propellant puffer, that's hard to say, propellant puffer, uh, that would be the equivalent of you switching to a vegetarian diet or avoiding a long-haul flight a year, and that's with one prescription. So you can have a massive impact at work. And what about where 10% of your income goes? So you're an investor uh, in superannuation uh, as an employee of a hospital. In fact, most of us have superannuation. And actually your financial shadow will have a bigger carbon impact carbon footprint than you will once you're getting up to, I think, somewhere around $200,000. And anything above that, your financial shadow is using much more carbon than you are, unless you have switched to a sustainable uh, investment portfolio, which is not hard to do. Just ask to switch to an SRI fund. Can you see the work being done to decarbonise the healthcare sector being applicable to other industries as well? And conversely, are there any success stories in other industries that healthcare might take inspiration from? The health system is part of the broader system. So, for example, if we start driving changes in our supply chain, if the manufacturers to whom we're speaking are responding to what families and clinicians are asking for and starting to produce reusable items and or at least recyclable items, for example, made of only one type of plastic, not multiple, then those supply chains will probably have impacts on areas outside of health. And hopefully these calls are being made in every sector and health is just part of it, but we need to be part of it and really we should lead because, you know, as as is now being understood, even at a government level, uh, climate change is a public health issue and we we need to lead on this. Yeah, and, and training people to actually ask those questions within a healthcare context mm. will mean that they'll ask those questions more broadly mm. of other industries as well. Mm. I mean, at, at Deakin, we actually have programs for uh, our in our health faculty that we're hoping to get to the point that all of our health professional trained uh, undergraduate and postgraduate students come through with a climate or sustainability literacy so that they can see it that's part of their job. Uh, and we already have uh, well-established programs at the undergraduate level uh, around health, nature and sustainability in our health sciences course. And at the postgraduate
graduate level, we've just launched a sustainability and healthcare uh, stream in one of our master's courses. So it's absolutely essential that health professionals are literate in, in this idea of climate change and sustainability. They understand the link and that they know in their sphere of influence, whether they're a nurse, a doctor, you know, public health uh, practitioner, that their job can actually influence, um, you know, the changes that we want to see. And the Australian Nursing and Midwife Association are becoming real leaders on this. The AMA are now joining in with Doctors Environment and many of the medical colleges to make some really clear calls about this, including calling for decarbonisation of the Australian health sector by 2040. So this is happening. Uh, the medical schools, as you say, are incorporating this into their training. The colleges now have guidelines for how... Uh, how the colleges should be running towards a sustainability agenda, including even things like how they run their conferences. And we need to think about that when you talked earlier about 7% of our national footprint is um, due to the health sector. That's probably an underestimate. It doesn't actually include all the doctors flying off to their conferences. So, uh, and there's a few other things in there that I think we need to have a good hard look at. It's just not reasonable to fly to Frankfurt for a four-day conference. That's just no longer a reasonable thing to do. And I think we should really be making a value assessment of every decision we make now with regards to its carbon footprint and uh, benefits. And I suppose COVID has shown us the opportunities there. You know, the online environment is thriving. You know, we're, you know, the... Uh, the leftover that we live in is we're running hybrid events and we're much more amenable to having an online virtual conference. I know as academics, we're very much participating and um, orienting to that. I know that the health sector is, you know, trying to largely uh, stay stay with that model as well. So we certainly learned from that. Going back to the point of COVID, I think we also, uh, particularly in Victoria and other parts of Australia with the lockdown experience, we also understood the benefits of nature for our health, which is kind of a connection to healthcare. And let me just draw that bow, um, is that there's also an opportunity in healthcare to green it up, to make it a better environment for patients who doesn't like a bit of plant life or looking out a window uh, when we're tr recovering from illness? And there's already science to demonstrate that it uh, speeds up recovery. We've got to remember our doctors like uh, Mike and his colleagues, they've come under a lot of pressure under COVID and they've worked big hours and our system is under stress. So we need to look after the health professionals so they can keep um, looking after us and also worrying about the environment. So they've got a lot on their plate. So there's really opportunities to also green up the healthcare setting to promote health and wellbeing in place. And so again, to that idea of co-benefits, let's promote mental health of our staff there. Let's, you know, support patient recovery. Let's make the experience in the hospital more satisfactory for parents that are coming after coming to see their sick kids all with a little bit of nature and green and just making that environment you know much more supportive uh, and the co-benefit of a greened up hospital uh, there may be some sustainability outcomes and that's associated with biophilic design that's another area we're conducting research on and it's looking very promising that nature-based healthcare approaches can promote sustainability and health on the other hand. Yeah, we have a big opportunity at Barwon Health in building the new Women's and Children's Hospital for that to be uh, as sustainable as possible, all electric, biophilic design, a really friendly place for families, 
to you know come and recover. So we're talking about some of the other benefits um, apart from just reducing waste and emissions. I think we all assume that in order to get sustainability, we have to forego things. Um, we have to sacrifice some things. Um, but it's not all about sacrifice, is it? We can enjoy some of the benefits of a sustainable healthcare system, like you've just said, but you might have other examples as well. Yeah, we could we could probably dramatically reduce our consumption without any loss of quality or safety. In fact, I'm sure we can. There's a lovely example given by the head of the College of Ophthalmologists recently at a meeting where he showed us a a cart of waste after a single uh, cataract uh, replacement in Australia and a similar cart with a similar amount of waste from something like 30 or 40 cataract replacements at, at a hospital in India. And we might like to think, oh, well, but, you know, that's led to much greater safety and infection control. But actually the infection rate was higher in the Australian uh, list in this in this study he reported uh, and the complication rate was lower and better success rate in the Indian group. So I think sometimes we just, just believe that more plastic and more consumption is better because that's that's the part of the that's that's the way the system is currently working but i think we really need to really question that there's a phrase that we use in health you know make the healthy choice the easy choice i'd like to think that we can also make the sustainable choice the easier choice so uh beyond what the individual does there's decisions that can be made in the healthcare setting as I've said, in local government, state and federal, that will actually make the sustainable choice the easier choice, possibly the more convenient choice uh, to actually support individuals to adopt those behaviours. So, you know, there's it's a combination, again, of of instruments that we're, is required to, to help us all move forward together. So finally, before we finish up, with the methods you've outlined today, can we hope for a sustainable health care system sometime soon? Absolutely. Health professionals are leading the charge. Uh, they've put up policy, they've put up strong networks to drive change, uh, super motivated, super intelligent, and we've got the evidence as well. So we're in a really good position to drive change in Australia. Yeah, I'd like to second that. Uh, in fact, uh, it's unreasonable to plan for anything else. And uh, yeah, we can and we must. On that hopeful note, um, Rebecca and Mike, many thanks to you both for outlining not just the challenges, but also the opportunities that decarbonisation presents for the healthcare industries. You've given us a prescription for action through your contributions to research and informing policy. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation, creating research for right now and transforming how we design and deliver healthcare. If you'd like more information about any of the topics or researchers featured in this podcast series, follow us on Twitter at IHT underscore Deakin.